You're listening to a sermon podcast from Church of the Gates, where we desire for real people to meet the real Jesus and experience real change. We pray that God might use the next few minutes to draw you closer to him. God, I pray that you would open your word to us today. Um, As we speed through uh, your book, God, that is meant to show us your mercy and your justice. God, I pray that as we discuss uh, our own idolatry, as we think through uh, what we deserve from you, God, would you reveal parts of our arrogance, parts of our pride uh, that are not yet yours? God, I pray that there would be people here who who don't yet know you, who would be convicted to follow you today. I pray that we uh, we would all sense a deeper need for you. And be willing to give, uh, give up the things that keep us from you. Give up sin and wayward desires and uh, patterns in our life that are bringing death. Cisterns that do not satisfy. God, would you watch over us? Would you change us today for your glory and our joy? Amen. In the book of Judges, uh, at the very end, there is this phrase. Uh, Judges 21 Verse 25, and it says this, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The meant is Israel rejected God. Israel did whatever their hearts desired. Israel gave in to whatever they desired. They worshiped whatever they wanted. Israel lived as if God did not exist. The same God that parted the Red Sea, that walked them through the wilderness, that helped them conquer the promised land, they gave themselves over to their own desires. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That feels, feels appropriate for today. You don't have to look far in society to see that uh, truth and justice seem to be relative seem to be based on feeling. Even in our own marriages, in our own lives, how we do business, how we operate at school, like we, we are often captive to our own desires, doing what is right in our own eyes. The real issue with Israel is that they forsook, that is, they rejected God and began to worship other gods. And so uh, Jeremiah uh, paints this picture, and it's this idea that, that they fill their lives, attempt to fill their lives with other gods' passions and desires that ultimately do not fill them. What do we fill our lives with? What passions and pursuits do we hope define us? What, what do I pursue in order to find fulfillment or purpose? Whose acceptance do I clamor for and would do anything for? What gives me value? All of us have something in our lives we try to fill our hearts with that ultimately does not satisfy. All of us have something we worship that cannot produce what it promises. And these things, uh, Scripture calls them idols, they can be wayward passions or desires, focuses, good, good things that we give our lives to. The thing is, they offer a little bit of fulfillment, but take more of our hearts and lives 
We become addicted to small amounts of purpose, fulfillment, satisfaction, hope, acceptance, offering more and more of ourselves over to the pursuit of money, to the pursuit of uh, happiness, to the pursuit of health, to the pursuit of whatever it is. We fill our hearts and lives with vain pursuits that ultimately leak out of our souls, leaving us more empty. This was the problem of Israel in the book of Jeremiah as well. That is to say, if you feel that this morning, welcome to the party, it's not new. Israel pursued water from vain sources and satisfaction was elusive. Like trying to catch water through a colander, it just flowed right through. So what does it look like? And why do our pursuits only make us thirstier for more? And what does it mean? How do we find like soul level satisfaction? Is it even possible in this life? to find the kind of peace and satisfaction that seems elusive. So what I wanna do is I wanna look at the book of Jeremiah today. I want to uh, introduce it to you as we've been doing in our Every Book for All of Life series. I wanna take a look at prophecy again. We're gonna briefly go through the three things we talked about last week because I know some of you weren't here. Uh, and then we're gonna head and we're gonna look at through, uh, through, the, through the prophecies of Jeremiah, we're gonna look at God's judgment on his people and God's judgment on the nations. And then we'll give three takeaways, three takeaways for the book or from the book for us. So briefly, who wrote the book of Jeremiah? That is a straightforward Jeremiah. Well done. Y'all did great. When was Jeremiah written? 627 uh, BC. So this is after, after Isaiah. This is right before the Babylonian exile uh, that will plunder all uh, of Israel. Jeremiah is about 20 years old, 18, 19, 20. Uh, he is a priest in the nation already. He's, he's in that line of priests and God calls him and says, I have this message for you and the people are gonna hate it. Your people, you're gonna to preach to them and they're gonna hate you and hate your message and actually they're going to want to prevail against you. They're gonna attack you, but I'm going to deliver you. What's the structure of Jeremiah? Roughly, it is chapters one through 45, our judgment on Israel, chapters 46 through 51, judgment on the nations, and then chapter 52, Jerusalem in ruin. Jeremiah is not written chronologically. It is like an anthology. It is a guy named, a scribe named Baruch actually compiled all of Jeremiah's prophecies and, and, and kind of stitched them together in an anthology so that chapters one through 45 are thematically the same and then chapters 46 through 51 are thematically the same, but there is not, it doesn't follow a historical, uh, historical flow. It's basically a greatest hits of Jeremiah's sermons is how you can think of this. Why is Jeremiah so important? The book of Jeremiah highlights God's justice and plan to save his children. Like for 45 chapters, all Jeremiah does is tell Israel how bad they are and how worthy of God's judgment they are. That's 45 chapters. That's the majority of Jeremiah's ministry to Israel was walking into the temple courts and prophesying to Israel how wayward they had become, how idolatrous they were, knowing that Israel was not gonna respond and knowing, like chapter 20, chapter 20, they put him in stocks in the temple courtyard and mock him and beat him, a prophet of the Lord. This book displays clearly Israel's rejection of God, God's foretelling of the judgment on his people, God's judgment on the wicked and God's plan to change his people. 
Alongside this, if you read Jeremiah, and you should, you know what comes through really clearly? Is Jeremiah loved the people of Israel deeply. And the compassion he has for them, knowing what's coming, is deep. Which is why we actually have lamentations, which we're going to talk about next, next week, which is this, this weeping over Israel for the rejection of God. It, Jeremiah knows what's coming, sees the rejection, and weeps for them. This isn't an I told you so prophet. See, look what you had coming. It is a prophet who weeps over a nation who has rejected God. Jeremiah's deep compassion and broken heart for his people shows through. So uh, three, three minor, three things about uh, prophets in the Old Testament, just briefly, we'll go through them again. They were messengers from God. They often ignored by Israel. They spoke in Hebrew poetry, they were written in Hebrew poetry. And what we mean is that the prophets had a real dynamic interaction with God at some point. That God spoke to them, uh, the message that they were to have for the people. More often than not, we associate prophecy with like foretelling who's gonna win the Grizz game next week. It's gonna be the Grizz. Uh, Thus saith Mark Pritchard, that's not worth anything. Uh, we just, but we just associate prophecy with the, the, the foretelling of truth of what's going to happen in our life. Prophets in the Old Testament were concerned with forthtelling. That is, they are telling the things of God. Uh, and, and those things are concerned about the future, but more often than not, prophets served, prophets served to try to convict Israel of their sin. So there's, I don't know, 15, 16 prophets altogether in the Old Testament all of them basically have the same message. Turn from your idolatry and repent. So that's basically the rest of this series. Turn from your idolatry and repent. So they, had, they were messengers from God. They were often ignored by Israel. Uh, and they were, they were saying, like, come back into the covenant. But Israel was so hard-hearted. They loved, uh, they loved uh, their, their idols and all of this. And often uh, the, the prophets were made to be object lessons. And they wrote in Hebrew poetry. And so as we think about God's wrath and God's judgment, it is often displayed in this beautiful, poetic, and fantastic language meant to describe, meant for us to see and illustrate who God is. So that is uh, just briefly about Hebrew poetry and Hebrew, uh, Hebrew prophecy a little bit. So we're gonna look at God's judgment on his people today from God's, uh, from God's word, Jeremiah chapters one through 45. God, God's judgment on his people. We often don't think or talk about this, but Jeremiah displays that God will not let sin in his people go unaddressed. That we have the mercy of God, we have the grace of Jesus Christ, but when God sees us and sees sin in our life, he is not indifferent towards it. He's not indifferent towards our idolatrous hearts. He's not indifferent towards desires that the desires of different things. He is jealous for all of us. At the very least, Jeremiah displays that God will not allow your hearts not to be fully his. And so the first 45 chapters, uh, Jeremiah describes this idolatry in, uh, in, in terms of prostitution. Israel, you have prostituted yourself or you are an adulterous wife. You have given yourself over in some really graphic, uh, some really graphic language. Images of blatant hypocrisy. There is this one scene in, one of the, in Jeremiah 7 where uh, Jeremiah, it's one of his, his, his preeminent sermons in the book and he's preaching to Israel and he says, you know, you who wander into the courts and you say, I am delivered. You who just, you who just said that, 
You were out in the valley sacrificing to Baal. And so the images of Israel going to the valley, sacrificing to Molech and sacrificing to Baal and Asherah, and then coming into the temple as if nothing had changed, as if their devotion to God was the same, and saying, we're delivered. Jeremiah 2, 12 through 13, grasp God's word for his people. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. To get, get the picture here, a cistern, uh, Israel is arid and dry, very few natural springs. And so uh, they, archaeologists, archaeologists have found thousands of these cisterns, what they are, are holes carved out in rock or carved down meant to collect water for Israelites, for them to drink, for them to wash in, for them to, uh, to, to, to live. If there's no water, there's no life. And so they would make these cisterns, put brick around them and mortar around them. What would happen if those cisterns were not fully sealed? Water would leak out. Can you live without water? Not very long. This is the image that Jeremiah, that the Lord is painting through Jeremiah. Listen, you have created for yourself cisterns that are leaky and ultimately will lead to your death. Imagine creating a cistern, digging it out in your backyard or in the side of the mountain, putting all that effort in, putting all of your life into it, putting the brick and mortar all around it only to watch the rain flow in and flow out. It is hopeless. Without water, there is no life. This verse illustrates two things that Israel did, two evil things, the Lord says. They abandoned God and they built something to collect, to hold other water. So they abandoned God. I wanna look at this, Jeremiah 2, verse five. Uh, under Israel abandoning God, Jeremiah 2, verse five. What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? The accusation from God is saying, listen, what fault did these people find in me? Was I too faithful? Was I too good? Was I too just? Were my promises always kept? What, like, what was it? Could they find any fault in me? They knew me, they followed me, they kept, I kept my word and they left anyway. But the charge before Israel isn't that God was unworthy of following, but that in the midst of God's perfection and love, Israel wanted something else. Israel left God simply because they wanted to worship something else. They found no wrong in God. They found no injustice in Yahweh. They found no lack of mercy. They just wanted to work and worship other gods. They abandoned their creator. They abandoned the miracle worker. They abandoned their savior. They walked away from their protector. Jeremiah 7, in this, in this, in this massive sermon, he starts off and he says, listen, you don't love your neighbor. In fact, you afflict the fatherless. You are violent against the innocent. You ignore the widow, you ignore uh, the orphan, you shed innocent blood and you sacrifice outside the temple. And really what Jeremiah is saying, in, in the summation of the law, you don't love your neighbor and you don't love God. But if you change, you can live in the land. But if you don't, judgment is coming. For all intents and purposes, Israel had abandoned God. They no longer thought about worshiping him truly. They never thought about his commands. They lived life according to their own moral code, according to their own desires, 
according to their own wisdom, according to their own hopes and dreams. They were living an ungodly life. The, the author in his book, Respectable Sins, Jerry, Bridge talk, Jerry Bridges talks about ungodliness, not just being sin, but a life lived without thought of who God is. That ungodliness is not just sin, but it's a disposition of life where you wake up and you don't think about God. That you go to work and he's not a thought in your mind. That you're married or single or dating or you're going to school or whatever it is. That God is not a part of the equation at all. They were ungodly. The problem wasn't just that they abandoned God. It's that in that, they abandoned the only source of living water for their souls. They gave up everything that could fulfill them. Israel walked away from their only source of living water, the only thing that could satisfy. In that, they abandoned God, walk away from anything that could satisfy. They have to create then for themselves hope in their own actions and their own deeds to create something that, that could satisfy them. And so they built these broken cisterns. They hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. They walk away from God, the only God who can satisfy them, fulfill them to the deepest parts of who they are. And no kidding, then they're in the desert and they're parched and thirsty, wanting more. And so they begin, uh, the pictures, they begin making these cisterns all around their life. And it's, it's, it's another, it's a euphemism for idolatry that they begin giving their lives and their hopes and their families and their dreams and their money over these things that they want to define them, that they want to bless them, that they want to protect them, whatever it is, and these things can't do it. It's idolatry through a different picture. Idol worship, Jeremiah is, is, is trying to picture, it's like seeing an oasis in the desert. That the Israelites walk away from the temple of God where they find all of the living water, all of their hope, all of their satisfaction, all their forgiveness. They wander into the desert. They become so hot, so diluted, they see an oasis, they see the palm trees, the shade, they come up to the pool and begin to scoop what they think is water, but they're shoving sand into their mouth. This is the image of hopelessness and death. And with every scoopful of sand, they die more and are thirstier still. Or to put it in our words, idol worship is like filling a pool you want to swim in, but the water leaks out, so when you jump in, you just hit cement. This is the picture. And so Israel built, builds idols. They build temples to idols. They build altars to idols. They did not stumble into sin. They ran from God and began to build for them things they thought could sustain them, things they thought could feed them. They worshiped other gods. And the more they did, the more rebellious and the thirstier their souls become. This is why. It's like, look at verse, uh, verse 12. Be appalled, O heavens. He's speaking to the angels. And be appalled, be shocked at what my people have done. These people who I called, who I loved, who I protected, who I gave deliverance to, who I, who I, who I, who I provided everything for, who I gave them a land. Be appalled, O angels, O heavenly host, that they have run from me. My people who I love have rejected and replaced me. They have done evil. This is the essence of chapters one through 45. An accounting of the evil of the people of Israel who walked away from God and pursued their own idols. You know, you know what they do to, to Jeremiah at some point? Chapter 38, they throw Jeremiah in a cistern to die. They're like, hey, you like talking about cisterns? We have some empty ones. 
We don't like your message. We're gonna toss you in there. Muddy, deep. He was put there to die. Jeremiah 52, just fast forward. Jerusalem is destroyed. God keeps his promise. If you relent, if you amend your ways, if you repent, you can stay in the land. They don't. God brings Babylon. Babylon lays waste to Jerusalem. God waited and waited and waited and waited and waited. This is the God of the, New, the Old Testament. We think, again, the misnomer in society is that God is fickle and that he is capricious and he can't wait to destroy his people. And yet the testimony of the Old Testament is the exact opposite, that he waited and waited and gave them multiple opportunities before he brought judgment upon them. And look, we think like, listen, it's, it's God's people. He should love them. He shouldn't discipline them. But any parent in here knows that disciplining your child is one of the most loving things you can do for them. And scripture says, listen, how awful is it, how awful is it if a parent doesn't love his child enough to discipline him? So God says, listen, repent. And so all of Israel is destroyed. Uh, all, all, all of Israel, the, the, the land, J Jerusalem is just laid waste to. And yet in the midst of this, not all hope is lost. At the end of chapter 52, there's this little, it's a little story. It's literally at the end of the book, King Jehoiakim, say that with me, Jehoiakim. That's very good. We're good enough. It's the end of the book. Jerusalem is destroyed. Babylonians have conquered. It looks hopeless. And then the writer starts, starts talking about King Jehoiakim, verse 50 or chapter 52. Something happens in Babylon. There's a new king. This new king hears that this Israeli king, this Jewish king, is in prison. He says, you know what? I think that guy should be released. And so he grabs Jehoiakim out of prison and says, you know what? I want you to eat at the king's table for the rest of your life. Not only that, we want to give you new clothes. Not only that, we want to make sure that you have money to live your life with. And so this guy, King Jehoiakim, lives at the seat with the king, uh, basically in a really esteemed position in Babylon for no reason. This new king just says, I just have favor on this. So we got to ask ourselves, why does this matter? Why does it matter that this story is even in there? King Jehoiakim, you know who his like great, great, great grandfather is? King David. That even in the midst of Israel being judged, even in the midst of God meeting out what is proper justice, God says, I'm gonna hold on to the line of David. I'm gonna make sure there's a new king in Babylon who just happens to have favor for this random king he's never met so much so that he's gonna bring him out of prison, put him in a place where he should be, and pay for him to live out his life safely. Also that in the midst of brokenness and judgment, God's promises can still be good for his people. God's discipline is not meant to destroy his people. If you want to understand how God's judgment works on his people, his judgment is not filled with wrath, which destroys people. His judgment is punishment, meant to correct and build up. So what's for us here? In, the, in this section, we've talked about Israel. Let me just offer this as a thought. God will do whatever it takes to make us more like Jesus. God loves you too much to give you over to your sin indefinitely. God loves you too much to allow you to sin to your own detriment indefinitely. 
God's greatest desire is for us to become more like Christ. In other words, a way you could say it is he cares more about our holiness than our health. He cares more about our holiness uh, than our financial viability. He cares more about our holiness than our success at work, than having a peace-filled family, than good grades. Than he cares about your holiness more than he cares about anything else in your life. And he's willing to do whatever is necessary to get your attention. He's willing to do whatever is necessary to take care of the sin in your life that you won't. And yet God loves us in that. He is for us. He is not some distant, merciless uh, killjoy. He is like a, a compassionate surgeon who comes near to you and says, you have cancer. And I am the only one who can remove it. And unless I remove it, you're going to die. Will you let me do this? And the compassionate surgeon draws near and removes what we can't or won't for our good. Jeremiah 46, verse 28. Fear not, O Jacob, my servants, declares the Lord, for I am with you. I will make a full end of all the nations to which I have driven you, but of you I will not make a full end. I will discipline you in just measure, and I will by no means leave you unpunished. In other words, God's saying, I will make an end to all of Edom and, and Kedar and Babylon, all of these people who have gone against you. I'll make a full end of them, but to you I will be just. God's discipline often comes uh, actively and passively. Passively, God often lets us have what we want. God often lets us taste the bitterness of our sin. God often allows us bitter attitudes, hidden sin, secrets that we keep to ourselves because it makes us thirstier for him. Or God, God's judgment and punishment can be active. That is, he actively brings you trouble in order to get your attention. Is discipline meant to protect you from something worse? God is willing to do whatever it takes to make us more like Jesus. He loves you too much to let the sin in your life destroy you. He loves us too much to let, this, to let us linger in sin. He loves us too much to let us get away with sin. He is gracious and good to us and slow to anger, but God is just, and he cannot look away from injustice. Church, his discipline will not destroy you, but it will be painful. It will be corrective. It is meant to be constructive that we might become more like Christ. So God's judgment on his people is the first part of the book of Jeremiah. The second part of the book of Jeremiah is God's judgment on the nations. This is the part we all like. We're like, wow, how can the wicked, how can the wicked you know, prosper? And why are we talking about the house of the Lord first being judged? And honestly, like, there's almost nothing more perplexing to us in the world to evil which seems to go unpunished. Whether it's the murderer or the rapist or the political leader or the pundit or the stockbroker or the gang leader, it often feels like justice in our world is in short supply. It often feels like evil triumphs over good. Jeremiah felt this way as well. Jeremiah uh, chapter 12, verse one. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. Yet I would plead my case before you. Why, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? Israel was surrounded by people who had perpetrated evil against them. It was the Egyptians, the Philistines, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, the Damascites, the Kedar and Hazarites, the Elamites, and the Babylonians. They were surrounded on all sides by people who hated them, hated God. 
Everywhere Jeremiah looked, he saw evil people prospering and evil nations growing and evil, uh, and evil things going unquestioned. And one of the great questions of this book is, why did you spend 45 chapters talking about punishing us, but only like five or six for punishing the nations? Those with the deposit of truth are held more responsible for what they know about God and how they act than the world who doesn't. Judgment comes for all of us is the point, but those who know who God is and run away are to be judged as well. God has not forgotten the point of, the, of these chapters in Jeremiah is God has not forgotten to bring justice against those countries. Their evil will not go unseen. Consider the last words on Babylon. Jeremiah 51, verse 58. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the broad wall of Babylon shall be leveled to the ground and her high gate shall be burned with fire. The peoples labor for nothing and the nations weary themselves only for fire. In the end, what God is saying is Babylon will be laid waste. Nothing will be, uh, nothing will, 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 uh, will be there. It will be leveled by fire, all of the grandeur, all of the idols, all of their power will be consumed. God will use Babylon as an instrument of justice, but they will not escape justice from the Lord either. It's interesting too about Babylon in all of scripture is Babylon is used as an archetype for evil. In other words, in Revelation chapter 17 and 18, where it talks about the fall of Babylon, it's not talking about the city of Babylon, it's talking about uh, rebellious human structures of injustice in government. That this, this promise is not just a promise for Jeremiah, but it looks forward to a time when all systems of injustice, all systems of, of, of hatred of God and idolatry will come under his foot and be crushed. For us this morning, it's helpful for us to know that God does not sweep injustice under the rug. The things that we think go unseen by God, the people who seem to get away with great evil, the people uh, who, who abuse and hurt and, and leverage their power for whatever purpose, God does not sweep injustice under the rug. He is not indifferent to injustice and he is not indifferent to evil. In the cross, all injustice is ultimately paid for and finally paid for. Justice may not come in this life, but because God is good and sovereign, justice will finally come and be done perfectly. You see, everyone stands before God at some point in their life. Those who have had their sins forgiven by the blood of Jesus will enter to their reward. Those who stand before their maker, who have rejected Jesus in this life, will have their result. Eternity in hell separated from the love and the mercy of God. In the end, no injustice will be left unaddressed. God is too good, too loving, and too merciful to allow that. Three quick takeaways. You ready? Here we go. Number one, be bold. Number one, be bold. Jeremiah, verse 1, 18, 8 and 19. This is God speaking to Jeremiah. Do not be afraid of them, for I, am, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. What he's saying is, listen, I know you're 20 years old. I know you're prophesying to, the, to your people, but they're going to try to attack you, prevail against you. They're going to hate your message. They're going to want to hurt you. They're going to try to hurt you, and they're going to hurt you. But I want to let you know that I will deliver you. God promises to deliver. Jeremiah. God did not promise to keep Jeremiah from trouble. That wasn't the promise. The promise was that God would be with him to deliver him. There is a serious lack of boldness in Christianity today. There is fear that keeps us from preaching the gospel. 
There's fear that keeps us from sharing our faith. In any given week in my life and in yours, opportunities to share our reason for hope float by. Fear of saying the wrong thing or fear of what the response will be or fear of what it will cost you. None of us is as bold as we should be or can be. God's promise to Jeremiah is the same one he offered for us today. It is Jesus who said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I'm with you until the end of the age. Boldness for the gospel might cost you, but it might produce fruit. Boldness for the gospel might cost you, but it might be used to bring someone to salvation. Boldness for the gospel might cost you, but it might be used to strengthen you, to make you more resilient. Your friends, coworkers, and family need to know about Jesus. They need to know about eternity. The world needs to know that they will stand before their maker. And if they don't have Jesus, they will be sent to an eternity separated from him. This is not trivial, church. We need boldness like Jeremiah, willing to be thrown in a cistern to see people know him. So be bold, like invite someone for a meal. Like invite them for coffee. It doesn't have to be preaching from the streets. It can be. But the people in your life, one of the best gifts you can give them is your time. Be bold, invite them to church, pray with them while they're hurting. One of my uh, Bible college professors said, like one of the best, one of the best methods, methods of evangelism is just to be someone's friend long enough for something bad to happen in their life. It's funny, but it's true that there are these moments where eternity comes into focus and death and diagnosis. And if the Christian is right there, just, can I just pray for you? Well, I don't believe, that's okay, I believe for you. Let me pray for you to the God of heaven who can heal. Let me pray for you to the God of heaven who can save. Second takeaway is to repent today. Repent today. Jeremiah 7, verse three, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds and I will let you dwell in your place. Church, God is slow to anger, but he is just. And he loves you too much to overlook your sin. There is time to repent and that time is now. Look, we are not guaranteed the rest of today. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. But the promise, what, what, what Jeremiah, what God is offering through Jeremiah, he says to Israel, listen, if you repent today, you can stay in the land. And what God is saying to us, if you repent today, you can have relationship. You can have this thing that I promised with you. But if you don't, punishment and judgment are coming because I can't overlook sin. For some in this room, God has pressed into your life in difficult ways. He's looking to get your attention. He wants you to repent. He wants you to take stock of your attitudes, your desires, your hopes. He wants you to repent of these things. That doesn't mean the hardship will go away, but he's pressing into the wound that we might repent. For some in this room, He's allowed your sin to take its own course. You have a pattern of sin that no one knows about and you're, you're befuddled. That's a good word. You're gobsmacked that no one knows about it. That you have this sin in your background, no one knows about it. And if, any, if anyone knew, and so you continue in darkness with your sin and your walk with God is distant, dry, and performative. You are like the Israelites who come and sacrifice to Baal during the week and then on Sunday come and say, I am delivered. God's judgment is upon you. He's allowing your heart to have what it desires, distance from him. And so the call for all of us is to repent and confess our sin and to find our way to Jesus. Three, and finally, drink deeply. 
Third takeaway, drink deeply. Be bold, repent today, drink deeply. You don't have to drink sand. You don't have to. You don't have to give your life to things that don't deliver. You don't have to have a soul that is parched. You don't have to have a life that is without purpose, without hope. We don't have to live life parched to the deepest parts of who we are. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. This is the new covenant. This is Jeremiah, God prophesying. God saying, there will be a time when things change. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on that day when I took, on that day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. God is looking forward for the Israelites. He's saying, there's a time coming when my relationship to my people will not be governed by tablets that I will not write my law on tablets, but I will give people a new heart and write something onto their heart. They shall be my people. Their sins shall be forgiven forever and I will never remember them. Living water, the God who has the living water will flow freely through and into their hearts. And some 600 years later, this guy named Jesus of Nazareth shows up on the scene and shows up at this well in Samaria, which is like the worst place for a Jew to be, and sees this woman. And he says this to this woman as part of a conversation, John 4, 13. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become, become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. It is Jesus who said to his disciples when they questioned him after he fed the 5,000, Jesus said to him in John 6, 35, to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. It was Jesus who said to the Jews who were near him during the Passover in John 7, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living Water, the God of living water is exemplified and seen in Jesus. That all of that our hearts desire, all that our souls yearn for, all that our lives are meant to be are found in him and him alone. All of our thirst is quenched in Jesus. Our hearts are leaky cisterns. As long as we fill them with something other than Jesus, hope, fulfillment, purpose, Love, joy, peace, all of that will leak out. Jesus comes to bring new life, to heal cisterns, to give life to parched souls. All who drink of this water will never thirst again. What a promise. He says that to the Samaritan woman, he says it to you, that if you come to me, all who drink of this living water will never thirst again. Imagine that, having a soul that is completely satisfied. And so we trust and believe in Jesus' life and death and resurrection. When we do this, you are forgiven. You find living water. You're given a new heart, a new home, and your soul is satisfied. 
Our only hope for justice in this world is God. Our only hope for mercy in this world is God. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would, as we read Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and go through all these prophets, God, you would not make us weary of hearing that there is idolatry in our souls, that there are parts of our lives that are not yet yours. And so God, we, we give you permission today to do what is necessary in our lives, to rid us of the sin that we can't let go of or won't let go of. Would you do what is necessary to make us more like your son? Would you help us see the idolatry? Would you help us see our rebellion? God, that we might be filled with living water. That our souls might be satisfied in Jesus. That our souls no longer leak with the things of this world, but overflow with the fresh living water that brings peace and salvation to all those who believe. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon podcast from Church of the Gates. For more information about our church or to connect with us about what you've just heard, please visit churchinmissoula.com.